Hello, Marshall. 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 Hello, Brian. I, I... Uh, all right, here we go. That was for you when you're editing later. <laughs> Welcome to episode 324 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin, and I'm a little sick. And I'm Marshall Bach, and I'm perfectly healthy. So you're going to be talking more than I am. (laughs) Uh, You can probably hear it in my voice. I'm a little stuffed up. I got that sick sound. But you know, we do this this for the crowd. Do Mm -hmm. this... uh, Power through. Power through, no matter what happens. Uh, The show must go on, as they say. Yes. And we have a good one for you this week. Uh, Before we get into that, we have some new supporters of the show. Huge shout out this week to William Goy, Tobias Trepman, Richard, just Richard. What's up, Richard? Just Richard. Uh, Ed Johnson Williams, uh, Jacqueline Nguyen, Charlie Van Meter, Sean Whitworth, and Ali Salem. 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 Damn, there's like three ways you could put emphasis on that A. <laughs> well, if, there, if we're known for anything, it's our precise our, pronunciations of people's names. Yes. Yeah. Get perfect every time. We are very good at this. Um, mm-hmm. Well, thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. If you yes, didn't thank know, you. Uh, yeah, we're a listener supported show. And if you want to chip in and help offset the cost it makes to produce the show every week, go to patreon.com slash design details. Your support means the world. That starts at just a buck a month. And that dollar gets you into a very exclusive club where you get uh, sponsor-free episodes and access to bonus land content. We have uh, one bonus land content or one bonus land episode out as of this recording, but more to come soon. Mm -hmm. Probably we'll record one after this episode. Yes. We also have a very special tier on our Patreon called The Golden Ratio, which is where uh, we get to shout out cool companies doing cool things. So shout outs to Sisu. Sisu is looking for a thoughtful and data savvy designer to help build the next generation of analytic software. You can find out more at sisu.ai. That's S-I-S-U dot A-I. Also shout out to Flywheel. Flywheel is a delightfully designed managed WordPress hosting platform, thoughtfully built for busy creatives. You can streamline your workflow with their slick platform and sweet set of workflow tools perfectly made for designers. Get started at getflywheel.com slash design details. So thank you, Sisu, and thank you, Flywheel. All right, we got some follow-up as well. Boy, we got some tweets this week. What did we do? So let's see here. Last week, we talked about designing for social proof, and we got a tweet from Matt who says, one thing that came to mind, could the social proof experience be left up to the user? in the sense that a user, a given user could decide for themselves whether or not they wanted to see likes, favorites, et cetera, instead of the platform making that decision for everyone. Yeah, that's an interesting permutation we didn't cover last episode. But yeah, User I, controlled? I, I, I can't think of an example of that, but that's a nice uh, tool to have on the table. Well, so it did make me... Uh, I, I coincidentally was chatting with a friend this week, and he pointed me to a chrome extension uh, also available on firefox called hide likes everywhere which is a browser extension that hides uh, facebook likes and comment counts twitter uh follower counts as well as like tweet retweet and like counts on tweets it also hides youtube instagram reddit like all the counts on those platforms Mm -hmm. just as a browser extension 
I think it's a good idea. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. It, I think it forces you into a position to decide whether you would follow someone or like a thing based on the merit of the thing itself and not based mm-hmm. on any sort of like implied popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of cool. So anyways, uh, good point, Matt. But yeah, that's we'll have a link in the show notes. That's hidelikeseverywhere.com if you want to play with that extension. We also heard from Michael Kneprath, a uh, uh, frequent writer in. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Uh, Michael said, I know Marshall's a big fan of the sentiment already, but video games clearly have the most battle-tested onboarding flows out there, and all designers should be studying them. Uh, I had this thought during the latest Pokemon. Your main menu gets filled out as you discover new features, usually introduced organically during events in the game, e.g. the professor giving you your new Pokedex. So good. Uh, yeah. Hard agree, man. The new Pokemon's onboarding is great. Um, I'm not a I'm not a Pokemon guy, but in general, yeah, the idea of like I, I think video games have figured out onboarding far better than than we have in design. And uh, sneak preview, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. So yeah. stay tuned. Yeah, I liked. Uh, I mean, Michael's point about uh, the main menu getting filled up is really smart. And then they also just have. Uh, they also have some nice touches around like anytime you encounter something new, they'll pause and sort of explain the new thing and then you never see it again. Um, but Hope if, you remember it. If you go into your menu, they will have a reminder. There's like a little thing mm-hmm. that says, hey, this is a new thing. And if you mm-hmm. hover over it long enough, then it the like reminder goes away, like a little red dot kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they tr- uh, there's lots of little things here that are trying to help you make sure you remember. We also got a nice little tweet thread from Tiffany Zhang who said, really enjoyed listening to the Design Details podcast on social proof in online communities and took some notes. So Tiffany put together a Notion document with some notes on our conversation about social proof. That's neat. Yeah. Uh, But also we got, there was another reply to that uh, with a paper about how downvotes don't actually do what we think they do for new community members. And that like, yeah, downvotes are hard. So this paper is from a Stanford article called how community feedback shapes user behavior so for anyone Mm. who wants to dig into some academics this is for you link in the show notes we also heard from grant howarth grant says newcomer to the podcast but been binging it on commute and at the gym so much great info thanks thank you i say to that thank you yeah yeah back at you Patrick Marks tweeted at us uh, after episode 322 about designing app onboarding experiences. Patrick says, one of my favorite episodes so far. Thanks, Patrick. Cool. Yeah, these those are my favorite episodes too. <laughs> yeah. And then from our same one on, on app onboarding, Kevin Bennett tweeted and said, get stuck. It's a good one. So it sounds like that one is, uh, folks are enjoying that one. And then finally, we got a little bit of a late follow-up from Aaron Miller, who uh, was talking about episode 321, our conversation with Mag and Ryan. Aaron says, really enjoyed this episode. So refreshing to hear from two amazing illustrators. Love the network and support we have as creatives. So thanks for listening, Aaron. All right, that's tweets. Uh, normally, this is where we do our news thing, but I but uh, the news things that have happened recently are are kind of like design tangential or design adjacent, <laughs> right? Right. So I think we're going to talk about those in a bonus land episode. But the the topics we have in mind, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon for just a dollar, you too can listen to these things. Um, we're going to talk about that uh, that Tesla Cybertruck. Oh boy, is this going to be divisive? We already uh, established that Marshall and I have very different opinions. <laughs> yeah, on on the look of that thing, and when demos go wrong, um, uh-huh. 
There's also a new MacBook Pro that I think is worth talking about. And Apple released a new battery case that has a special button on it, Brian. So those are those are our topics for the next Bonus Land episode two. You too can listen for just a dollar on our <laughs> for Patreon. Just a dollar. Patreon.com slash design details. <laughs> Sign up. It's just one easy tap away. Brian with the plug. Yeah, there we go. Uh cool. I think I think this is probably the right idea for bonus land. Like design tangential. Also, it's we're covering a lot of Apple products. I don't want it to be only about Apple products, but those yeah. are things that I feel like we could evaluate from the design perspective and it is a design like a a well-regarded company for design. Mm-hmm. So industrial it's kind yeah. of fun to critique that. Uh, Plus or, just a bunch of Apple things that have been coming out lately, right? Like we go through yeah. long droughts, but right now there's a, there's a glut of things to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so that will be news in a bonus land episode TBD, but soon. So let's get on to our listener question for the day, Brian. Uh huh. So this question comes from listener no Sam seven. It's on our uh, GitHub repository. It's github.com slash specfm slash design hyphen details. A great URL. Um, perfect URL. So easy perfect. to say. Yeah, check the show notes for a click. But you two can leave a listener question here that we will potentially answer on the show. Uh, we we look at all these and try and fit them in when we can, especially if we can actually answer them. Some of them are very hard questions that. I don't feel prepared to answer, but uh-huh. uh, this one I think is, is a good one. So, uh, listener no Sam 7 asks, What, if any, design choices have you been able to incorporate into a digital platform that you learned from interacting with something in real life? Have you noticed anything that real-world products could stand to learn from a UX perspective from digital product design? Uh, great question. So basically, how do real-world interactions influence digital interactions and vice versa? And what are some examples of those? And what are some ways that they can learn from each other and get better? This yeah, is a Pandora's like, box. Uh, also, a subtext that is like, what are you doing outside of work that is informing the the things that you're making on a screen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'll start with this. I, I uh, teased a little bit earlier about having uh, a little video game design talk. So last episode, uh, for my cool thing, I mentioned Hollow Knight, which is a video game. And I, I was gushing over the kind of onboarding tutorial for that game, which teaches you very uh, intuitively and gradually what available moves you have to do in the game and does it in a way that doesn't beat you over the head with it and hit you with a bunch of prompts and everything. It teaches you through experience rather than through telling you what to do, uh, which is a great way to learn uh, (laughs) through experience. So let's talk a little bit about design in video games and how that influences uh, the things that I do. So, Which, by the way, as Michael pointed out, like most designers could learn a lot from video game design Mm -hmm. because it's just a little bit more mature, but also has so much more complexity to input mechanisms, but also like, how do you remember how to do things? Like what are the different mechanics per game? Uh, Especially like controllers have gotten more complicated. There's input and output on controllers then you have the display and then sometimes there's two displays mm-hmm. there's there's like the whole constraint of difficulty like mm-hmm. you don't want things to be too easy you don't want it to be simple all the time mm-hmm. uh, so anyways uh yeah this seems like a good place to dig in yeah and and 
so I think you hit on a really good starting point there is, is, is difficulty, which is something that if you work at a company that makes a product that's used by a bunch of people, like, like millions or billions of people, you're basically dealing with the same problem, which is how do I make a product that accounts not only for beginners, but also for experts in a way that the expert doesn't feel like they're being hamstrung and a, a beginner doesn't feel like they're being overwhelmed. And what is the process to get for, for a person from one stage to the next? Like, what's that middle zone look like? And that's usually the dead zone. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. oh, we built this for power users. And there's nothing less than this. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of games take the easy route, which is let the player decide. But there are other games that, that do it dynamically. I think a good example of this would be uh, Left 4 Dead. The game has a has what they call a director, where it the game itself will determine the level of preparedness your group can handle, right? So if you are just after a big fight and everybody's low on ammo and everybody's low on health, it, the game will be less likely to throw a huge zombie horde at you, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if you're all stocked up and everybody's healed up and everything's ready to go, like you, sh- you should expect a zombie horde to show up out of nowhere. And there's like a, a very clear audio cue when that happens. And there's, there's all these uh, indications of what actually is going on in the game, but it, it tweaks the difficulty of the game to the state that the player is currently in. So they try to hurt you when you're healthy and they try to help you when you're hurting. <laughs> uh-huh. And which which makes it a great challenge. So it's this dynamic uh, difficulty. So how does this how does this relate to design? Well, uh, I think this is kind of what we we're getting at last episode with onboarding. We we talked slightly about knowing where the user is at in their flow and hitting them with a question or a prompt at the right time. Right. So we mentioned, and that may never ask you to sign in until you try to do something that requires you to be signed in. Right. Yeah. So yeah. reacting to the to the user's behavior and and hitting them with prompts when it's most applicable to them. Oh, you want to do a thing that would require notifications? Well now we'll ask you to enable notifications instead of just doing it all up front. I feel like there's also another angle there, just like to go back to the difficulty point of view, which is how can you make things really obvious, like uh, by providing great signifiers and affordances for things, but Mm -hmm. let power users that want to poke around and learn gestures have that ability as well. So one example would be like an email app. If you tap on an email, there's probably going to be a row of icons somewhere to archive it or delete it, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. That's kind of beginner mode. People will look for a trash can and and map that to delete. But Mm -hmm. a power user might know that they can just swipe it and they or they could long press and peek into it. They don't have to mm-hmm. do both of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, an app that supports that beginner-friendly mode and the more advanced usage mode, in this case, the gesture, I feel like that's yeah. a great uh, way to think about difficulty. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of this of this method. I, I refer to it colloquially. This is my term. I don't know what other people call it, but I call it slow mode and pro mode. Oh, okay. Right. So generally, you should always have a slow mode for any action that a user can take in your app. There needs to be an obvious, straightforward way to to perform that function. But for functions that are commonly used by experts, you can have a pro mode for that. So that's your long press, that's your cell swipe, right? Um, That you can get at these things a lot faster if you know that they're there. But if you don't know that they're there, you can still get to those actions very easily as a beginning user. Does that ring true for you, the slow mode, pro mode thing? Yeah, it does. And I think I, I could even go one layer 
below that, which is like, it also depends on the context of that person. Like you could be in a, in a slow mode, but still be a power user. So one example of this might be like, what does the interface afford if you're in an email app and you have 10,000 emails in your inbox versus five emails in your inbox? Like what are Mm. the tools given to you as a user uh, where, you know, you could potentially be the same person and be in both of those states on different days. Mm -hmm. Uh, But being able to have a dynamic tool set that lets you handle that context appropriately. Uh, Mm -hmm. Or even I was thinking about like not progressive disclosure, but the opposite of that, which would be like um, maybe you can hide certain things after people figure it out. I think a good example of this is hiding tab bar labels. Like maybe you show labels for a while, but Hmm. then the person knows what the tabs do and you Mm -hmm. can hide them and clean Mm -hmm. up the interface so that there's just less visual noise on the screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like that feel, feel relevant too. Yeah. There's also in the other direction, the progressive disclosure, um, the idea of once a user has proven themselves proficient at a certain action, that's the time to hit them with the pro version of that action. Right. So like if every time I want to delete an email, I tap the email, I tap the trash can, I tap back. After I've done that a few times, maybe that's the time for the app to say, hey, there's a quicker way to do this. And then give me an opportunity to do it in a safe playground area where I'm not actually messing with my data. So that I I, I know the feel, I learn through experience, and then now I'm armed with this this new tool that that I've already proven is an action I, I want to perform regularly. And now I've graduated to the to the faster way of doing it. But you didn't hit me with the faster way early on because maybe I don't ever want to do that action. But only yeah, or just proven. be overwhelming, right? It'd get mixed yeah. up in in an onboarding flow or something. Mm-hmm. And and video games are very good at this. So uh, you mentioned something earlier about giving visual affordances to help people understand what's going on. And I'll, I'll try to tell this really quickly. So uh, a while ago there was a video that came out on on YouTube. A guy made this video where he asked his wife, who does not play video games, has never played video games, to play video games. And he sat there next to her on the couch and he recorded everything. And he uh, he made a rule. He said, I, I will refuse to answer any questions you ask. Only the game can teach you how to play the game, right? And it was super eye-opening from a UX perspective because, because of the long history of video games, this is like a 40, 50-year-old industry, depending on how, ba- how far back you want to go, it's been a gradual ramp up of difficulty in, in input methods, right? So initially, if you go back to the original original video games like Pong or, or Pac-Man, you're basically dealing with a joystick. You can go up, down, left, and right, and that's about it, right? Some, some of the early games added a button to that joystick, but basically you have two inputs. You have direction and an action. But over time, that tool set expanded. So if you fast forward to the NES, you have a D-pad, a directional pad, up, down, left, right, with select and start. Those are kind of like uh, OS-level buttons, but then you have A and now B. So you have two different action buttons that can do two different things. Fast forward some more to current days. Now we have a D-pad, two analog sticks, four buttons, A, B, X, and Y, two shoulder buttons, and two trigger buttons, plus your OS, like, start and select style buttons, plus typically, like, a, a home uh-huh. button, or, or <laughs> and some of them even have yeah. trackpads, like PS4 has a trackpad. So, like, holding that thing in your hands and seeing all these inputs, it, it has to feel like flying a plane, right? Looking at a plane console, right? It's just too much stuff. And 
if you don't have the muscle memory of knowing where those buttons are, like where is square on a PlayStation controller? Well, I know where it is, but uh, if if the screen is just telling me press the square button, I have to look down at the controller every single time until I become comfortable where that button is. So the reason I bring this up is that just a day or two ago, he released a second video where he had his wife play a game that a bunch of people had commented and recommended for him, Breath of the Wild, the new Zelda game, newish, where... The button prompts for this game, if they tell you to press A, on screen they don't just say press A, they they show you press A and here's A, but they also show where A is in relation to B and X and Y. So you don't have to look down, you can feel right, the, right. the geographic location until you gain that muscle memory, you can see on screen and feel with your thumb without having to look down where that A button is. Which is so useful for especially like cross console players, right? Because A, B, X, Y, they're all in different locations. And then if you go to PlayStation, it's totally different. Yeah, there's a famous meme of like, uh, where it basically says, press the X button, and it's got a bunch of different controllers, and the X button is in a different spot for each one of them. Yes. Uh, Which is a real problem. But this is something that we run into with apps, right? Like my idea of where, say, a, a grid view versus a list view segmented controller should go my idea of where that is is probably different from where somebody else wants to put it and if i don't pay attention to the rest of the industry i'm i'm forcing my users to to relearn things they should already know when they download my app which i think is uh, has this broader conversation happening of like our design systems hindering creativity and like is hig and material are these things just forcing us into paths that uh, reduce our individual expression as designers and mm-hmm. it's kind of yes but at the same time like as you've just described having things be uh intuitive or familiar it makes a lot of sense and i think like sometimes that doesn't work out i think the one example that comes to mind for me is the fab which is in material land the floating action button it's meant to be this one floating button that will be persistent it will appear across all apps and you use it to create things right like it will open uh, creation interfaces do no, i have that wrong no you have that wrong or, or at least the the original intention of the fab was that it does the main thing your app does right so if you're making an email app the fab should be create a new email or if you're making a shopping app, the fab should be like your cart or something okay, like okay. that, right? Uh, I don't think it worked. <laughs> uh, Why do you say that, Brian? Well, because we saw a huge wave of, I suppose, mostly Google products introducing the fab. And then uh, slowly they all went away. <laughs> they're no longer there. Well, they're, they're still there. They just changed the position and yeah. the styling. And they're very... They're very confusing still. I still find them confusing. I I guess as I'm thinking through all this stuff, it just makes me empathize or sympathize or or perhaps not even be able to do any of that for somebody who's brand new to computers. Like these things, in the same way that we've just become accustomed to these complex video game controllers, Mm -hmm. like we've become just over time aware of so many tools and technologies and patterns that exist that they're intuitive uh yep. gestures but yeah, like huge trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's never used a computer let alone never used the internet i wonder what that would be like and how would you explain concepts which might 
feel intuitive to us today, like, oh, you want to download something. Where is it going? You can save to a different space in your computer. Like, how does uh, spatial location and navigation work within this digital screen, this box, right? Like, it's just zeros and ones being indexed. How do you yeah. explain that to somebody? But we're just used to it, right? Like, we have, oh, desktops and folders and directories, and you can mm-hmm. upload and download, and then there's mm-hmm. the cloud, and that means that there's a, a hard a hard drive sitting somewhere on some server farm in South Carolina or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Virginia. Um, but like we get all this stuff. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I guess this is why user research exists, right? It's like you have to understand the context of the users that are coming into your experience to make sure that like, where are they in their digital literacy cycle, right? Like how much do they know about patterns that should, that would exist? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and this is the whole reason that uh, we got skeuomorphism, I think, right? Exactly, right. It was like to ease this transition from an analog to a digital world. Oh, you want to use a calendar? Well, let's let's make it look like your desk calendar with beautiful Corinthian leather and stitching. Yeah. You want to take a note? It must look like you're writing on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm, with little ripped pages at the top. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about skeuomorphism? Because I feel like <laughs> this is, getting back to our original listener question, this is like, how does the real world influence digital design it's like this is it right Mm -hmm. yeah and it's the this is the the gateway drug to to get into using digital products if you've only ever used irl products right in real life yeah Uh, and and i i think we went through a phase where where that was the norm right probably six years we had had to go through the phase had to have it Yes. But what about the people who missed that boat? What about the people who are coming in now, right? People who've never had a phone before and they're getting their first smartphone. And we've already moved on to flat design where buttons don't necessarily look like buttons. How do they adapt? Right. And skeuomorphism is a way to help. But yeah, we've gotten rid of a lot of visual cues. Well, I think maybe we should start, Marshall. Like, let's talk about what skeuomorphism is. Uh, okay. And then I think we, I don't know. I suppose our listeners perhaps maybe are aware of some of this stuff so we should i think it'd be fun to just talk about like what are good examples and like what's still lingering around yeah you can really point to and say like yes this is skeuomorphic right yeah and i think that's probably the most important or the most interesting thing to to think about is like okay now that the the skeuomorphic aesthetic is bygone what has stuck around what are those things that have have remained so Dictionary.com uh, <laughs> Here we go. defines skeuomorph as an ornament or design on an object copied from a form of the object when made from another material. But usually it's it's ornamental, right? I think that word is important. Like it is a, a visual cue that might not necessarily be functional, which I think a good a good example is the notes app, right? Like it has a paper texture in the background, but that paper texture has no function at all it's it's purely an ornament that is derived from its original form which is a piece of paper in the real world this is your 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 felt in game center so that people know like oh yeah i know poker tables have felt on them so this is game center it must be it must be uh like poker and felt i know what that looks like Uh um uh, and it helps these people in so now that we've moved past it what are the things that have have stuck around the ones i can think of are sliders, toggles, 
segmented controllers and buttons. Yeah. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Especially radio buttons, I think, are an interesting one. Um, yeah, even the name. Yeah, yeah. The name radio button is a skeuomorphic term, right? Actually, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'm not sure what the etymology of radio button is, but I always assumed it was like when you're in an old car and you have six presets on the radio, you can only have one preset chunk button chunked in. No, that's it. Any- I, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the, the the function of a radio button is a, it is a single select of many things where only one can be selected at a time. Yeah, yeah. I think those are all good examples, and I I also like to point at the things that have just still stuck around as terms we use that have are, are derived from some sort of real world counterpart. And I think good examples here are like the desktop and folder, <laughs> yeah. uh, trash, yeah. recycle bin. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh man, recycle bin. Yep. Yep. Like those those words are really interesting in a digital interface, right? Like a a literal picture of a trash can with crumpled up pieces of paper in it is <laughs> very skeuomorphic, and that's oh, yeah. stuck around for forever since you know, like fuck, Windows ninety five. I don't even know when uh, that first and, came around. And, and sometimes these things can actually be negative. So real quick, as an example, do you remember on old versions of Mac OS, if you put a CD into the, into the disk drive, the way to eject the disk, because there was no fucking button, on, no physical button on the, on the tower to eject the disk drive, the way to eject it was to drag the disk image to the trash. And while you're dragging, the trash would turn into an eject button. Well, we still have that, right? Uh, yeah, that might that might still be true. I just right click eject now, but like it took me forever to figure that out when I first started using it. Like, because why would I ever drag the CD of important information into the trash? Why would I ever delete it? Right? Yeah. Uh, so so you got to be careful with how you use your skeuomorphism because sometimes it can indicate the wrong thing. Do you feel like we got rid of things that were useful? Yes. Or... Okay. Yes, what, we did. What did we lose? Uh, I I think uh, the the biggest egregious uh, problem here is buttons for me, mm-hmm. um, and a, and a lot of designers choose to keep buttons looking like buttons, meaning they have a container. Sometimes they have a slight elevation with a little drop shadow to let you know that they can be depressed. But with iOS seven and forward. Uh, for example, the back button was like a, a, a rectangle with a point to the left yep. that mirrored the direction that you're going to go. And now it's just like a little chevron pointing left with, with a, a text label next to it that is sometimes usually the, the key color of your app, so typically blue. But unless you can tell that this is a different color from the rest of the non-interactable text on the screen, uh, that button doesn't look like a fucking button. It looks like a different colored piece of text, right? It looks like a label. It just looks a like label. a label. It doesn't yeah. look like something you can tap. And when you add a container to a thing, it looks like something that you can tap. When you add a sharp container to a thing, it's not as obvious that it's a tappable thing as if you add like a slightly or or greatly rounded corner radius to, to that thing, right? There aren't a whole lot of perfectly square 90 degree corner buttons in the world. Most of the buttons that we touch on a daily basis are either round or rounded. 
So that's a really great visual indication that this thing is a button on your screen. But if it has no container, if it has no bounds, or if it has no indication otherwise that it's a tappable button other than it's a different color than the rest of the UI, that's a step backwards, I think, from, from skeuomorphism. Hmm. And that's not to say that we need to have glossy, shiny buttons for everything. You know, like, <laughs> that there's, web there's a middle ground style. here. Yeah, exactly. I, oh man, I got good at those shiny, those shiny oh, man. glossy. Those buttons. were so fun. Like <laughs> yeah. learning how to make them look glossy. Uh, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Was, that was how I learned. Uh, Photoshop was making buttons. Me too. Yep. Yep. Get that. Get that gleam layer. But yeah, so I, I think we can eschew some of that stuff. Like that's not necessary. That's that. A lot of that is ornamentation, but. There is a there's an atomic unit of skeuomorphis of of skeuomorphicness that uh, n- needs to be retained, and we see this in sliders, for example. So, like a slider, it looks just like a slider. If you go to like a a, a music studio and and look at the board, there are sliders there. There's a little track that the that the slider can go up and down on the thumb, I think is what it's usually referred to as, the little, little circle. Um, that thumb can slide on the track, and it can only go to the to the bounds of that track. But on iOS today, even though they've gotten rid of all the drop shadows and containers and everything, a slider thumb still has a drop shadow. So you can tell that it's a thing that can be moved around. Same thing with toggles. Like the thumb in a toggle switch still has a drop shadow, so you know that this is an interactable element. Right. And, and any good input affordance has an indication of the effect of that input right next to the input. Yeah. And this is something that was sorely lacking for a long time with the volume buttons uh, in iOS, right? So you, you press volume up and down, and it puts a big fat uh, <laughs> alert thing in the middle of the screen and blocks whatever you're trying to look at. Uh, that's gone now. And not only is it gone, but the location of the volume bar is now right next to the volume buttons that you hit to turn the volume up and down. So that, that proximity, that, that uh, adjacentness of, of the meter to the input is far more closely related now than it ever was before, and it's far more intuitive now than it ever was before. Which is so good. Like I'm glad that that change happened, but I think it's also a good reminder of just how important it is that the output of any sort of given action is has some relationship. I think material does probably the best job of explaining this with just their motion principles. Like Mm -hmm. if you tap on a thing that opens a modal, have the modal open directionally from what you tapped from the thing. Uh, So yeah, I think that's a good principle that probably, I guess you would trace all the way back to IRL, right? Like you want this direct manipulation feeling uh, with anything that you touch in the real world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So certainly if we can bring that to a digital medium, it makes a lot of sense. Well, let me hit you with something else. How about, uh, do you feel like, this is just opinion, but do you miss any of the like super ornamental stuff? I think one example that comes to mind for me is uh, the Apple iBooks old interface where Uh you had these like really deeply inset wood shelves. Mm, Yeah, with grain and like uh, top-down lighting. So the books were illuminated really fantastically. Uh, and then if you opened a book, like the page turn effect was, that was like revolutionary at the time, right? Do you miss that? Um, I'm, I'm kind of poking around books now and they've retained a little bit. Like they do some interesting things with shadow and color to make it uh, a book cover look like a book, but it's not on a shelf. It's on a floating digital interface. Like it feels mm-hmm. kind of like a nice middle ground. But anyways, I'm, I'm curious what you think about losing some of those super ornamental experiences that we had early on 
I mean, I, I think for me, that page flip animation, uh, it used to be for picking between like your uh, view states in maps. Going between those was a, a segmented controller hidden behind the sheet of the map on a on a uh, oh, a, yeah. a gray linen uh, background. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything had gray linen gray texture linen, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, or or it had that cheese grater texture to it. Everything had texture before. I don't miss that, and I I don't miss the the tech demoiness of the page turn. It's a nice it's a nice thing, but I don't think it's necessarily better than just doing a a straight uh, linear sw- slide from one page to the next. Hmm. That's fair. So I don't know. I I, I miss it from a, a delight standpoint, but I, I feel like the delight has worn off for most people on that thing. There's a shelf life for delight. Yeah, I guess I would almost circle that back around to this progressive regression. It's like if you if you have this animation and delightful peak and pop and and movement, it, it does get old, and then at some point it becomes cumbersome. You're like, ah. Oh. I don't want to do this thing because it has a 500 millisecond delay between when I start doing it and when it will be done. Mm-hmm. And I think that feels like the middle ground that is appropriate where you can have a cue that th- something is like the cue is skeuomorphic, but the interaction itself is very fast and feels yeah. digital, right? Yeah, this is a great, this is a great point. So uh, latency, I think is a, is a huge thing to consider when, when, th- thinking about skeuomorphism, right? So, uh, and it's not totally obvious, but when you interact with something in the real world, there is instantaneous response. There's no delay. And that's sometimes impossible to achieve in a digital form, but there are things you can do to mitigate that, right? So in material, there's the ripple, right? When you tap mm-hmm. on a button, even if it doesn't react immediately and take you to the, to the next page or whatever, there's, there's a ripple from your, from your point that fills the container of the thing that you tapped on so that even though it might not happen immediately, you know that what I did had an effect and there's a minimum amount of time that a user will put up with latency, right? And it's on the, it's on the millisecond level. Yeah. Um, but, there's a, but there's a minimum amount of time that people will put up with something not reacting immediately. Once you pass that threshold... You need, as a designer, you need to provide some sort of transitional state that lets the user know that what I did had an effect. I, I don't need to tap it again. How many times have you tapped on something and nothing happened immediately? You tap again and then it does something that you didn't intend. Or right? does it twice. Tap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does it twice. Yeah, exactly. Like a, an immediate response to the user's input is crucial for maintaining a feeling of responsiveness and for helping them transition if they're a new user in, into this digital realm where like th- we got to load data and it might have to go up to the fucking satellite and go down to a different country and come back in the time that you know you expect it to happen immediately so we can we can account for these things with transitions and with you know on the worst side with loading spinners you know but having some sort of indication that yes you did a thing and yes we're working on it is crucial i mean i feel like we could even go one step further here because the latency is certainly important here, but there's also other feedback mechanisms that are, have recently gotten really good. Oh yeah. Like haptics. Oh yeah. I feel like haptics really changed the experience of using phones Mm -hmm. in that it was this very tangible tactile way of saying the thing that you did. Yeah. It happened. Like Mm -hmm. we got it. 
I don't know if this is quite the same, but like even the transition on MacBooks from having a trackpad that moved to having a trackpad that vibrated but felt mm-hmm. like it moved was pretty mm-hmm. wild. Like if you that think about magic, it, dude. I it is no magic. Idea. Yeah. yeah. I, that's not skeuomorphic, but that is like trying to bring in what user what humans expect when they interact with things in their day-to-day life mm-hmm. trying to bring that same level of fidelity to a digital interface i feel like and then all of these things in concert right and then you add in sound design like do things click and tap and pop and even just the lock sound of your phone like it kind of has a very satisfying click when you lock it you feel oh that mm-hmm. sounded secure <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all these things add up to an experience this is experience design. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of haptics. And and I done think done well, done well. You don't want well. you cannot yeah. haptic everything, otherwise you dilute the value of any given haptic. And not all haptics are created the same, right? Yes. There's there's a very big difference between a little bump and a, a more aggressive double vibration or you know like these things can mean things and there i think there are like kind of rudimentary human understandings that we can tap into to reinforce those ways of giving feedback through especially through haptics so and this is something i've talked about at length before but like having consistency in your haptics of letting a user know that like that's a that's a bad thing like something didn't actually happen and and also orchestrating those with your sound design like you're saying earlier there's a really good wwdc tech talk on this that uh, i can link in the show notes that's outstanding that talks about combining these things and and it really gives a really good visual representation of the haptic have you seen this one have you seen this talk i don't think i've seen this one it's great man it's from 2019 it's from the most recent dub dub and yeah, I, w- I would highly recommend it. Check the show notes because there also is beginning to be a standardization of what a haptic means. So in the same way that there's a standardization of how we use different patterns, like what a slider means, what a radio button means, like that's starting to happen on the haptic level. So you should you should pay attention to that so that you're not deceiving or, or confusing your users, especially if they rely solely on haptics as a as a feedback mechanism right i i don't know what the rules are like i don't think i have a great formal structure in my head but if i had to generalize i would say haptics for actions or responses to actions not for navigation um and i thought i downloaded that like new instagram sub app called threads and I tweeted it after I downloaded it because they did something interesting where every navigation interaction triggers a haptic. And I uh, felt like that was the, it was too much. And yep. so based on that, I peeled back. I'm like, all right, well, then what's the stopping point? It feels like actions or uh, responses to actions. I don't know. Do you have a, a better structure in your head of when haptics are appropriate? Yeah, I mean... Um, I don't know if I have a better one, but I, I agree with what you said. I, th- I think that moderation is incredibly important. And uh, so one example I can give is uh, a cool thing from a few weeks ago. I recommended Q calendar. Uh, my buddy worked on uh-huh. it's basically a social calendar. And uh, in the calendar view, uh, there's a vertical list of all of your events for for the day. And as you scroll through the vertical list, a new day uh, section header will will dock to the top of that list. And when that happens, there's a little tiny bump. There's a little tiny haptic bump. And you can, so it's very easy to tell as you're scrolling through new day, new day, mm, new day, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not distracting. It doesn't happen super often. 
you know, and you're not scrolling through that list very often, but it's really helpful of like letting you know without sound, without visuals or anything else, like I'm on the next day. And I, I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah, this scrolling thing is interesting because now I'm adding in, in my head, I'm like, maybe there's a spatial... The digital crown does this, right? Yeah, the Apple Watch actually got really good about this in the most recent update where like each scroll tick has mm-hmm. a small vibration. Mm-hmm. And this is useful for understanding velocity, right? And I, mm-hmm. same thing here with the scrolling in the calendar. Like you can f- f- give it a spin and get like this very subconscious sense of how far you've gone yeah it's this wheel of fortune thing right yeah and that's nice but i'm wondering how i would determine when i've gone too far in this so there's like a spatial velocity point of view but it also is kind of navigation so maybe my rule of navigation isn't correct yeah, yeah, there there are exceptions to any rule you could come up with with for haptics. Yeah, uh, it's mostly a taste and and feel thing. Um, uh, anyways, I feel like we've talked about skeuomorphism quite oh, a bit. This but, was fun though. Um, yeah, I thought. Yeah, I don't. We got a little bit into this question, but went down some rabbit holes. But I think this is useful to remind ourselves about every now and again, especially this idea of like what are the tools at our disposal for creating something that is intuitive and memorable and usable and it goes beyond visual skeuomorphism like i think that was useful but now we have so many other things that we can rely on and and incorporate into our workflows that help people so uh it's always good to have those in mind Mm -hmm. all right thank you for your question no sam seven yeah hopefully this was uh enjoyable to listen to so maybe we should wrap up with cool things and call it a day all right i'll start this week so I I forgot what happened to Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> there was a few years where like he wasn't in the zeitgeist, right? Yeah, he he famously uh, put a bag on his face that said, I'm not famous. Yeah. And then he recently kind of came out of hiding, I, I suppose, on his interview on Hot Ones, which is the hot wing show on YouTube for folks who don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh, have and it we was done great. a cool thing of that yet? We should. Oh, no, that would be a cool thing. Um but that was a, a nice interview. And, you know, I grew up with Shia LaBeouf. I think we're probably close to the same age uh, watching mm. him on Even Stevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my, you know, I grew, I grew up holes. Yeah. Like these really big parts of culture as a kid. Um, Transformers. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that movie series. Um, so anyways, he did this interview and I started poking around it. Obviously when uh, actors and, and people are, appearing on shows like this it's usually to promote some new work and so in this case uh shia labeouf is making movies again and the most recent one that i watched i think there's another one in theaters right now but uh the one i watched this week is called the peanut butter falcon and uh it's my cool thing i enjoyed it um sounds like an old design details episode title (laughs) the peanut butter falcon (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just like i don't know what that means Probably makes sense in context. But Actually, I have no that's clue. a great way to put it because the title, you're like, hmm, how's that going to come up? And then when you figure out why the movie's titled that way, you're like, ah, nice, mm-hmm. nice tie back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good. I like Shia LaBeouf as an actor now. I think he's like really matured. He's very expressive. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm no movie critic, but for people who want to, are, are like me and who maybe... I've been asleep at the wheel on what he's been up to. I think this was a nice way to 
get back into it. Uh, and what's, now, what's the has, movie about? Oh, good idea. Uh, the Peanut <laughs> Butter Falcon is about a person with Down syndrome who escapes from a nursing home and through chance uh, meets up with Shia LaBeouf and they have uh, an adventure together. They each have their own goals and and backgrounds and worldviews and they, they end up on an adventure. Cool. Yeah, so I, I watched it at home and uh, there's oh it's, a, oh, it's for home watching. I yeah, thought this was a theater thing. Uh, there's There's some sad moments there are delightful moments there are very funny moments so yeah it's it's one of those movies where i felt just happy watching it like i wasn't i didn't have huge expectations um mm-hmm. it's not a, a massive production it's like a very simple film it's here is uh, one snapshot of these people's entire lives that we want to capture on film it doesn't feel the same as watching a Marvel movers, movie or something. It's not like we're saving the universe. It's just a snapshot of normal people going about uh, some crazy experiences in their life. Would you classify it as a drama or a dramedy? No, I don't know how what the genre is. The IMDb page calls it an adventure story, but it's hmm. not like an action movie or anything. I don't know. The genre is it. Uh, I guess the genre it has adventure, comedy, and drama. So I guess you're closer than I am. Dramedy. Dramedy, sure. It sounded like a dramedy the way you described it. Okay, that's it. Yep. So that's my cool thing. Okay, cool thing, Brian. Uh, I have a cool thing. Going back to going back to the books, Brian, I've been Ooh. reading again. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so uh, on a whim, I, well, I, 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 I've said before, I, I have Audible. That's, that's how I consume my books, through my ear holes, not through my eye holes. Don't, don't text me. Um, <laughs> don't at me. But... Uh, then I had, I had six credits accrued. I was like, well, I need to go back to reading some books so I don't lose my credits. And I was scrolling through like the Amazon, uh, like only on Amazon original audiobook, whatever thing. And one of the suggestions was, uh, had a, had a, like a sci-fi cover with space and a spaceship. And I was like, oh, that appeals to me. That's the whole Immediately point of this type of, eye, yeah. I literally judged a book by its cover uh-huh. and, uh, it was correct for me to do so because, well, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, this kind of feels like the, the Babaverse trilogy that we referenced before. And I, so I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. Let me read this summary. Here, here's, a, here's a quick summary of what this book is about. One day, these aliens that look like hamsters start uh, attacking different industrial locations around the world. And just when you think everything is gone to shit and we're all fucked, other aliens who look like lizards show up and fight off the hamster aliens and we join the lizards <laughs> in their interstellar uh-huh. war against these bad guy hamsters. Or are they bad guy hamsters? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So Mystery I mean, abound. I was like, okay, that's kind of an interesting story. And 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 for the first half of the book, that is the story. Humans getting involved in this interstellar war between these lizards and hamsters. But eventually you realize it's much larger than that, and about halfway through the book a new character is introduced that totally changes everything and turns it into more of like, I guess uh, it's more of like a hitchhiker's guide style thing. Not exactly, but it becomes far more irreverent about halfway through. And, and I think a large part of the appeal of the book for me has been the reader, the, the narrator of this book. The guy they got is out 
standing. He the the main character is from Maine, so he has this kind of northeastern, almost Bostonian accent. It's but it's very specific, right? And uh, he does it phenomenally f- f- for what I'm aware of how that accent sounds. Like it se- it seems authentic to me. Uh, but he also does a British accent and a Hispanic accent and a German accent and one guy doing the voice for everything. Yeah. And his versatility is amazing. I've been very impressed. And and the cool thing is, so about halfway through this book, everything changed. And I was like, oh, I'm fucking in. Granted, it was halfway through a like 14-hour book. So that's kind of a long way to go before hitting the hitting the good part. But if you can get there... Boy, oh boy, it's fucking amazing. And the thing that really excited me is I was like, I, I was nearing the end of the first book and just gobbling it up. I, I listened to like the second half of the book in basically one sitting uh, last night. And I was like, oh, I need, I need to check out if there's a book too. Like, is there more to this story? And turns out the, the, the latest one I could find was book eight. So there's hella story <laughs> with this with this series. So uh, I'm into it. It's... Uh, I'm already on book two. It's just as good so far. The, uh-huh. the characters are really fun. The world building is really good. And it's irre- it's irreverent in a way that feels kind of like the Babaverse trilogy. It's got uh-huh. pop culture references in a way that is not egregious, like Ready Player One. It's not over the top, but it's, it, you know, the, the, the author is pulling from the same catalog of references that I have in my brain. So that works for me. Maybe you're not an old fogey like me and have the same uh, reference points, but I've been really enjoying it. I would highly recommend it to you, Brian. I think you'll really like it. This sounds Uh, like a book series made specifically for that person, which is a Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. This is written for me. Oh, did I ever say what the fuck it's called? Um, It's called Expeditionary Force. Um, that's that. That's kind of the overarching thing. That's like the the Bobaverse, you know, term. But yes, yes. the first book is called Columbus Day, and the, the second one's called Spec Ops. If that's an indication of where the book ends up going. Oh, but, oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, cool. Expeditionary Force, highly recommended. Very fun. I'll have to pick it up when I get out of my uh, crushing backlog of current current reading list. Yeah, I, I keep adding to your list. I know. Catch up, Brian. I know. What are you reading right now? I'm not reading anything right now. Ah, jeez. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, cool things. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. Uh, The day this comes out will be the day before Thanksgiving in the U.S. So Mm -hmm. if you happen to be in the U.S. or or celebrate that, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Yeah, and we're giving you an episode. Usually we take this off, but but I'm going to edit this fucker. Yeah, (laughs) uh, I'm taking on the editing responsibilities. So if the editing in this episode sucks, my apologies. We don't have our normal Drew. But uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to get that content out there for you. Yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, if you need more podcasts for your Thanksgiving or for wherever you are, if you just want more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. Go check out some of the other shows. Uh, of course, if you are enjoying Design Details, follow us on Twitter at Design Details FM. Or if you want to get access to a uh, personalized feed of bonus land content as well as sponsor free episodes, go to patreon.com slash design details and support the show you can pay just a buck a month 
and that helps us offset the cost of producing the show every week. And or you more, get, if you want, or, or more. more. But yeah, just we've a dollar's the, the the entry. It's rate. the minimum. Uh, we've had some generous folk out there for sure. Uh, so thank you who, if you are supporting, and if you aren't, uh, head to Patreon.com/slash/DesignDetails. And of course, thank you Sarah for producing our episode this week uh, during Thanksgiving week. And uh, yeah, I hope you all have a great one. We'll catch you next time. Gobble gobble, Brian. Gobble gobble. Gobble gobble gobble. It's mostly a taste and and feel thing. Um, taste meaning your your you know, aesthetic taste, not what the your, phone your, screen your tastes phone. like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What what does it taste like when you lick your phone screen? Delicious. Not good. Probably not good. <laughs> Dirtier than a toilet seat. Yeah. Uh, anyways. <laughs>